Hello and welcome to Behind the Hospital Curtain, the NNUH podcast, where we invite experts from across our hospitals to discuss different health-related topics. My name's Susie Halls and this is a really special episode. To mark Organ Donation Week, I'm talking to the family of an organ donor. Alongside Natalie Ashley, Specialist Nurse for Organ Donation, I'm joined by Charlotte Hornby and her incredible 12-year-old daughter, Lucy. This is their story. So Charlotte, first of all, can you just sort of tell us why we're chatting here today? So you've experienced organ donation. What what happened? Um, my husband, um, Andy, was involved in a road traffic accident just over two years ago. Um, he was a cyclist and had an accident with a big car. Unfortunately, um, he spent a week on critical care unit. Um, wasn't going to survive a bit of sort of feedback from having done the various medical tests, etc. Um, and one of the options that we discussed was him becoming an organ donor. He was in his early, very early 50s, so fit, um, healthy man. Um, and it seemed like a really good opportunity for him to be able to live on and help other people live, albeit he couldn't. Um, so, yeah, we made that decision as a family to, to do that. And had he already told you that he'd opted to be an organ donor? Had you ever discussed it as a couple? Yes, uh, we both signed up with Boots Card, I think it was, many, many years ago, probably not long after we first got together and got married. So something that cropped up every so often when you saw things on TV talking about organ donation. Um, and we signed Lucy up when she was first born to be an organ donor as well. So it was something that we both knew the other wanted to be involved with. And we both gave blood regularly and did give him plasma a couple of times. So that, you know, so we both could have had that um, view that we wanted to try and help. So, yeah, it was a really clear-cut decision for me. And you obviously had quite a young child at that time and had you, Lucy, had you ever spoken about organ donor or at that age had you not really known much about it? I hadn't really known much about it because according to my mum, when she first told me that my dad was going to be an organ donor, I asked her apparently, um, is daddy going to get a new brain? So I honestly had no clue to what whatsoever. Yeah. And did, how did you explain that or did the nurses kind of help? Um... Lucy wasn't able to visit Andy in the hospital until um, we'd made those decisions. Um, so it was all up to me to explain. But there was a very useful booklet that um, uh, Natalie had given me that explained about children going on to intensive care and what that means and, and all, what the sound things means. And Lucy knew that Andy was very poorly. And it was it was just part of those very short but regular conversations that we had. So when I came back from the hospital having visited him, Lucy and I would catch up and fill her in at an age-appropriate level as to what things were. And we talked about her organ donation, explained that, unfortunately, Daddy wasn't going to get any brain, um, but what it did actually mean and what did she think about that. Um, so you asked her, did you? Yes, yeah. And my parents were there giving support as well during that sort of week that Andy was here in the hospital. And I think um, my parents were able to spend sort of chat with Lucy as well and just help support her and, uh, you know, answer those questions again as, you know, children don't always take it all on board or nobody does it the first time round. No. And how how did it 
that news get broken to you? Was that by the medical team or was like Natalie there or can you remember? Um, yes, I think I asked about it first. I think really? we got to the point where the information that the medical team were giving me was not looking optimistic. Then Andy wasn't responding to brain stimuli. He wasn't coming around even with pain relief being withdrawn. Um, and so the inevitability of him not surviving seemed to be sort of growing. Um, and it was kind of one of the things that popped into my mind was actually I knew we talked about it. I knew it was something he um, believed in. Was it an option? You know, because again, other than signing up to be an organ donor, I knew very little about yeah. what happens after yeah at that point. So yes, because until I worked in a hospital, Natalie, I didn't know about sort of the circumstances around a patient's death. Is that right? And about how they about who qualifies to be a and I think most people, when they sign the organ donor register or talk about it, I don't think they realise that at all. It's actually less than 1% of people die in the circumstances or in the correct location to be able to then go on to donate their organs. So you need to be in an intensive care setting on a ventilator where the clinicians have come to the decision or, you know, have uh, from all of the tests and all the investigations they've done, they know that that patient isn't going to get better. And they have made a decision alongside with the families that in the patient's best interest that treatment would be withdrawn. So they are the only people that would actually be able to want to donate organs. It was really interesting because I had, like I said, I had no idea about what happened with the process when somebody is able to be a donor. And there were some of the questions I had is, how does the individual die? When do they die? And how you know, all those sorts of questions, and the team explained it to me, and probably explained it to me several times, you know. So it all sunk in, and I knew exactly what what was going to happen. Um, and the main thing that stuck in my mind was the individual has to get the organs need to be as um, be the right word in the best condition possible. So the individual has to pass away within four hours of treatment being withdrawn, so the ventilator being taken off. And I just remember thinking about my husband. This might sound a bit um, macabre for a podcast, but please don't hang on now. You know, <laughs> don't hang on to the four hours, over the four hours because all this sort of would be in vain. Um, as it happened, he didn't get anywhere near four hours. But I just thought this will be the moment. You know, he'll decide he's going to really put up a fight. Um, but no. Um, so I was with him when he died, and um, the team were fantastic. And you get a very short window after the person has died to say your final farewells and then the person's taken away so they can start the um, transplant or re- organ retrieval process. Um, it was pretty full of. I can imagine it. Well, I can't imagine it actually. And did you get to go in and say bye-bye before all that happened? Um, so I was there during the morning and then my grandparents came and took me home for about five hours or so. And then I got taken back around seven o'clock so I could say goodbye. And I then got taken back home while you were still at the hospital. And did some fun things, though, didn't you, in the morning? Yeah, I did, like, hand, we all did handprints. We took photos in his, like, favourite running gear stuff. And read some of, like, my childhood books with him, wasn't it? And then we then got taken back when um, his sisters and parents came down so they could have their time with him and then I just went home 
I got to talk with one of my friends and then um, probably half six, it was time to go back to speak with the chat phone. And then I then went then went out to the chat pool and then I went back home. Well, not home, but to my grandparents where you then came along the next morning. Gosh, we were pretty well on day and we were, as a country, still in the midst of COVID. So there was a lot of oh, blind tape yeah. um, to enable all the different visitors yeah. to be able to visit. I was going to say, because I was just thinking about you two, but yeah, you have to think about the wider family, like his parents and stuff. One of his sisters actually lives in America. So it was like two days before you were, you were trying to like arrange everything. And she literally just like packed her stuff and got on the closest flight and came straight to hospital basically. So it was following for her as well, just packing, flying, driving, just to say bye and then having good isolation for like a few weeks. But she got she got she got in the ass. Yeah. So that's that's nice. Wow. And you were so little. How you seem to speak about it so eloquently. Are you just amazed at her? Always. Absolutely amazed. Um, I mean, I took the approach in terms of keeping Lucy in the picture as just she needed to know what was going on. I couldn't um, pretend that Andy had just had a bump on the head and he'd be fine in a few days. I was 10. She was not 10 old. Um, following the accident, I was brought here to the hospital in a police car because obviously they were worried about his condition. So Lucy seeing me disappear off in a police car doesn't really bode for nine and hold the head that's going to be okay. You did you were out. We went um, out mm. just to go do some braiding my hair earlier. Went out and we were just coming up to like the main traffic lights, and then we got a call from Grandpa was it saying, um, "There's two policemen here that would like speak to you." They then proved it by the policeman then speaking to us saying. So we need you to come down here as soon as you can. Where are you? That kind of stuff. So we came down and then grandma and grandpa were both outside looking very worried, which was a bit unsettling for me. And then I went into the conservatory just waiting and I wasn't thinking much of it. I was just like, oh, something might have just small happened involving someone or something. Like I had no idea I was going to be dad. But then you came in looking like very shaky and you just like came down to my level and said, explained it all including the air ambulance and then you just went and then I went back to our house until like nine o'clock when you came back and explained everything. Yeah, so throughout the week, um, obviously things were evolving and changing through the week and as I say, each evening would be catching up with Lucy and explaining to her what was going on. So I think honesty was definitely the best way forward um, and then Lucy had the opportunity to say her farewells to Andy on that Saturday, I think was beneficial for us all because it gave her an element of pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Rather than just disappeared one day for a cycle ride and never came. Yeah, Andy. I do like his cycle. I do. Super sweaty. Yeah, I do. Do you still think that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One day's going to walk in. Usual cycle, like walk in, sweaty. Mind you, try to give us hugs. Yep. Be one to see. Yes. Goes upstairs. Bought him to have a shower. Plays, yep. Like a plate about something. Yeah, absolutely. When you sort of got over the shock of the accident, was it difficult? Did it ever? Did you ever doubt not doing it, the organ donation? No, it was the easiest decision I've ever made in my life. I mean, absolutely. 
I spend longer standing in Marks and Spencer's choosing my sandwiches <laughs> than I did making that decision. You stated that in the presentation. It is new. It is true. It was the easiest decision I've ever made. I think there are so many people who can benefit by having a milk um, donated. Um, and that was born out. We received a letter about three or four months after the donation from one of the recipients. It was all anonymized. Ah, uh, okay. But from one of the recipients, and he explained he'd received one of um, Andy's kidneys and he explained about how he, his life was prior to the donation, you know, the dialysis and the limitations that that placed on him and his family. And in, in the three or four months since the donation, what a difference it had made. You know, he was now back at work, he was going on holiday, he was catching up with family that lived further away, all those things that we kind of just take for granted. And that, I, mean, I didn't need the decision reinforcing, I still knew it was the right decision, but just reading that letter just made me think, Wow, yeah, really, really, really was the right decision. And for being really good. Yes, absolutely. Do you know how many um, organs were donated or how many people have benefited? I believe at least three, is that right? And then some of Andy's tissues and heart valves and things went in for oh, and his eye. research. His working eye. And so potentially more than the, than the immediate three. That's amazing. It is, absolutely. And do you... Are you allowed to know who they are or are they allowed to contact you? I mean, this is probably more for you, Natalie. Yeah. How does that work? So at the time when we talked to Charlotte about the process and did the formal consent for, one of the things we talk about is whether or not they would like to know what the outcome is. Um, and we usually write to families within a couple of weeks of the donation, just giving some information of the age, the sex, and you know how long they'd maybe waited for that organ. So like Charlotte said, no, no identifiable details are shared. And the letters come to us to check before they're sent on to families. Um, and the families themselves can then write a letter of thanks, like Charlotte received, to the donor families. Um, and again, we, we check all of those before they get sent out just to make sure there's nothing in there that shouldn't be shared. And do families ever meet up? Does that ever happen? So yes, it does. It does happen. Um, usually if they've been writing for some amount of time, mm -hmm. um, and if both parties want to meet up yeah that can be facilitated at some point yeah because i suppose it could be extremely upsetting but it could be extremely kind of up, not uplifting i don't know what the word is you know. i think it's maybe comforting yeah to know and to see somebody living that life that your loved one has enabled i think must just be very very touching have you ever met anyone yet no and i'm not sure that i want to particularly i mean the receiving the letter was amazing I and mean, um, you know, we shared that with with our family, and you know, we, as I say, it was comforting. Um, but I'm not sure I've got any great desire to meet up with with the people. I'm just happy that they're able to do what they had thought they weren't going to be able to do again, um, and enjoying what you know their own lives and their own families. And I think that's that's enough. That's enough for me. I think. Do you, obviously, with Charlotte and Lucy, the family were very um, supportive of Andy's decision. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like a straightforward kind of case, if you call it a case. Yeah, it was. And they're the families that a nurse like myself dream of because they're approaching us. We know it's something that they have discussed and that they are totally comfortable with. And it's when families don't know what their loved ones would have wanted that it it can be a very difficult question for them. And 
it's always at a very difficult time, probably the worst time of their lives, that we're then asking a question that they may not know the answer to. And it's often those families that will say no because they don't know what their loved one would have wanted. So even if you say, look, they're on the list here and they've said they do want to be a donor, if a family says, well, I didn't know that, no, do you have to go with their wishes? We would always follow a family's wish. We would try to talk to them and understand why they are saying no, especially if their loved one is on the orphan donor register and has, has made that decision themselves. But at the end of the day, we would always speak to family and, and go with what they decide. Yeah. Hopefully supporting them to support their loved one's wish. What sort of are the general reasons why people don't feel comfortable with it? Do they? Is it easy to describe or is it just yeah, a gut feeling? The most common reason I think is that they generally don't know. And that's why a lot of our campaign is around talking to your loved one, sharing your wishes and you know, I've I've met so many families over the years and the families where they do know and I ask that question, they are just it's just so easy for them to give that answer because they know they're following their loved one's wishes. Um some of the reasons might be just some misconceptions around donation. So some people might think that the doctors won't continue to treat for as long as they could because they want that that person to donate. Oh really? Which is completely not the case. No. And donation is only ever considered once a decision to withdraw treatment has been made. That is the only time we would get involved and start looking to see if someone has registered that decision and then talking to families about donation. And like like Charlotte was saying, you know, the end of life care for somebody who donates is exactly the same. If they don't donate, their loved ones can be with them at the time that they have their treatment stopped and pass away. Um, the only difference is that we may need a little bit of time to set that process up. Mm -hmm. So they would be continued to be cared for on the intensive care unit or we do all the background road, all the background work, finding recipients and setting up the whole operation and process and yeah. surgeons from you know, the specialist transport surgeons arrive to this hospital to perform that surgery. Most of the specialist um, surgeons that arrive here, they're not yeah, I'm not you decide This was so. This is what amazed me is that um, there were people who were travelling from all over the country to to do the retrieval and removal. Yeah, and they potentially hadn't met one another before, so um, the team weren't able to give me a time that everything was sort of kick off, start, or, yeah, because they needed all these yeah. myriad of people to get here. Sounds quite a logistical. Yeah, I, I, I was amazed. I, I, I just thought, wow. <laughs> it is very complicated. There's a huge amount of work to do in the background. And we try to be really honest and transparent with families at the time of, you know, taking consent because, you know, they've obviously spent many days sometimes in hospital at their loved one's side. And, you know, we then ask for a longer kind of prolonged. But, you know, our priority is that patient mm -hmm. and their care is, is paramount that they are comfortable you know they have all the pain relief they need and like i say the only difference is the time at which we would be able to withdraw that treatment and hopefully we we support the families during that time and we keep them up to date throughout that process because as charlotte said there's so many it's like a jigsaw puzzle there's so many things that need to come together at the right time yeah. so you know if we're looking for recipients you know one person could potentially save nine people's lives so nine different organs could be donated and you imagine 
we're, we're trying to liaise with the, the coordinators of the transplanting centres for all those different organs, calling in all those different people for their transplants to be going to theatre at the time that the organs are going to be arriving at that hospital in time. So there's a lot of coordination and occasionally we get a few curveballs. I, I see where they're not this. Wow. But we do try and keep people up to date throughout that. And, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's complex. Yeah. In terms of recipients and the list, well, first of all, let's talk numbers. How many people require organ donation? Seven thousand currently on the active waiting list, or people waiting on the active transplant list. Um, there's also three thousand eight hundred or so who have been temporarily suspended. So that might be for their current health reasons, um, and hopefully they will be put back on the list. So during COVID. A huge number of people got suspended from the list. Oh, right. And yeah. very, very few transplants were actually able to take place during the pandemic. Several reasons for that. There was a huge pressure on intensive care bed. Of course. The recipient after a transplant need to go to an intensive care bed. Also, um, after a transplant, they have to receive immunosuppression medication. So then, then high risk, high risk of COVID. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there was just very, very few transplants that actually happened during that time. Wow. So the list has sort of continued to build. So it's more important than ever, really, Absolutely. that people talk about it and, and make their wishes now. Yeah. And, you know, it's not only organs that people can donate. They can donate their, their eyes and their corneas can be donated. So, you know, not only giving organs to save lives, but being able to save somebody's sight. Yeah. Is, you know, an... I spoke to a patient recently, actually, who's just had um, a cornea transplant mm -hmm. and she went from barely being able to see and having cloudy vision yeah. um, to the day after surgery, like innovative surgery, mm -hmm. being able to suddenly see colours and flowers and shapes again yeah. and just how life-changing that was. And actually, to donate your corneas, you don't have to be in the same setting. Oh, donate your well. So, right, you can die in a hospital bed mm -hmm. and a referral can be made for you to then go on to donate your corneas. Okay. So it's slightly so, different. Yeah, so more people are able to donate tissues but people again don't realize and they still have to opt in for that um you can opt in for tissues on the register but families will be asked to consider tissue donation uh -huh. um and they may not necessarily make that that decision on the register so it would be down to the family to say what they think their loved one would have wanted or basically that decision on any conversations that they may have had yeah so it's always going with the patient's last known wish so whether they recorded it on the organ donor register whether they've had a, a conversation, you know, after they've watched, a, I don't know, an episode of Holby City or something yeah. and donation has been discussed, it might be that they've said, you know, if, that, if ever I'm in that situation, I'd love to be able to help other people. So that's what we call a known wish <laughs> or a known decision. Um, so that's sort of giving their own consent before they die to their family that that's what they would want to have happen. Yeah. So just to be clear to anyone listening, do they have to opt in or is it, it's now, a, isn't it, hasn't the law changed? So it's now technically you have to opt out. Yeah. So the law changed in 2020, in spring of 2020, um, and it became the opt out law. So the theory behind that is that if you haven't gone onto the register and opted out, that we would presume that you give consent to organ donation. It's called deemed consent. But again, we would always ask family because they may have, verbalised a wish either way to donate or not to donate they may just not have got round to, to opting out and the family may know that's something that they didn't want or they may know 
that they did want to, but hadn't signed the register to opt in. So we still encourage people to sign the register to say that they want to donate because it's a very clear decision. And if you're approaching a family and you can show them that their loved one has made that decision, it makes that a lot easier for them to support. Lucy, do you feel sort of proud of your dad and proud of the decision that he made? Definitely. I've said this like every single time I get asked a question, I'm always like, I've always been very proud of him, like even before, because he's done like loads of good things, like marathons, triathlons, or like, well, not marathons, but like half marathons. Um, basically, doing like those, those things, which he always manages to complete and finish. And I'm always like really proud of him because I always get to cheer him on straight from the sidelines. Um, and then when this happened and I heard back of you told me that those people have been helped because of this decision, I was just like, I was just shocked. I, couldn't, I was like, that's just really cool because he just helped save those people's lives because if they were like close to the end of theirs, he just helped them expand it by another like decade or so at least. So I would find it very like proud of, like, very proud of him for doing, be able to do that. Absolutely. And you, Charlotte, are you the oh, thing? Absolutely, yeah. Goes about goes without saying. Um, he was a very generous man in his life, or throughout his life, or other, and that was something that came out um, following his death. People were saying, you know, if I hadn't been Randy, encouraged me to do this or do that, I wouldn't have given it a shot. Of him to be able to continue to do that, in death as well, I think is just absolutely amazing. Um, and whilst I would have him back in a heartbeat, um, I think this is probably the next best thing um, that he's able to support these other people, as Lucy said, to have more years than they perhaps would have had otherwise. And um, we both take great pride in talking about the donation process and his part in that. And actually, if it means that one or two more people can sign up and should their families then be in that position, it hopefully other people's lives can be saved. We actually got like some of our friends because, like, um, some of my friends thought that we saw the back holiday. We actually got them to sign up. I was going to say, have you been able to sort of influence any of your friends or yeah. fam- you know, other people? Um, we the date's kind of fortunate for the accident because the day after it was well, obviously not fortunate in like that sense, but it was the day before bank holiday. So then we had like a day just to catch up with ourselves because it was a late night and then we could sleep in and we went to see some of our friends in the park, well, my school friends, your, their parents um, at the park. And I also took our mind off some things because we just talked, we just kind of spoke and stuff. And um, we then got chocolate as well, which was good. Um, <laughs> I thought we were like, I remember the really thing. And then, yeah, like big box of chocolate for myself. Like the, the, the thing that has really stuck in my mind is um, last year we were invited to attend a ceremony for the Order of Saint John, for which all I understand all organ donors receive the award posthumously. Um, so we attended a ceremony in, in Norwich um, along with other donor families and received this most amazing award, um, which. Is framed but not yet hung, but we'll be hanging in our downstairs loop. With a beautiful certificate and, and brooch um, that reminds us every time, you know, that, that Andy's done something pretty amazing. Not lovely. 
It's a legacy, isn't it? It's absolutely. I was going to say, there's no, that's, I mean, when you look online, they say, you know, there is no better gift than giving someone the chance of life or improved quality of life. At at that particular ceremony, there was a speaker who was a heart transplant recipient. um, And I I felt what he said was really sort of um, interesting and moving. But he said it's not just about him and the life he's now got. He can now see his children grow up, see his grandchildren. He ran a small business so that his employees, all those things that... Yeah, the ripple. Yeah, that's that's very much, I think that's the words he used, the ripple effect that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Wouldn't have been continuing had he not had the heart transplant. I know the people, um, because of dad's dying, it's kind of like there's been so many people I didn't know actually knew him because we had like way more than we paid for to come to the funeral. So it was like coming out, it was like coming from like outside and everything. So we had like those people inside, those people outside, those people that just came for the after part. And then at school, I've had gotten so many more friends because they were the ones that were like trying to help me through it. So they were the ones that kind of like just stuck with me. Like one of my friends, she's been to like close my parties and she's like me and I, she goes to my high school as well. So that's nice. And you've done stuff with your school as well, have you? Oh, yeah. I've raised money. For Nelson's journey, wasn't it? And in primary school, they did a run in December around the town, and I raised only like two hundred pounds. Was that? Yeah, absolutely brilliant. We did a big thing on the dry check, just had loads, and then I had more to give out to the check. Do you think you'll be a campaigner for organ donation as you get older? Maybe, probably still do stuff involving it. Done a good job so far. Of you record little videos for us and came and spoke to lots of nurses about organ donation and, and your experience with organ donation with your mum. That's amazing. But a little mini amber. I'm sure your dad would be so proud. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Charlotte and Lucy for being so brave and honest and sharing their own personal experience. As Natalie mentioned, in addition to registering your decision on the organ donor register, it's crucial to tell your loved ones your wishes should you ever be in the position that Andy and Charlotte found themselves in. You can read all the information on the NHS organ donation website. That's www.organdonation.nhs.uk. Please, please share this episode far and wide. You never know, it might save someone's life. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take care.